0: No, uh, nobody wants to see me dance. No. Nobody wants to see that. There are videos from the 80s, but no, nobody, nobody wants to see that. Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad to see all your smiling faces here out there online, wherever you are in the world. Pastor Paphras and our friends, our sister congregation in Tanzania. Welcome you guys. Um, I still can't say welcome in Swahili, so I'm not even gonna not even gonna try. He does that for us over there. Um, but hey, welcome, guys! I'm uh, I'm just so um, so happy and and just blessed to be able to start sharing this new series with you, uh, Works of the Heart. It's in James. If you're new here, if this is your first time, or maybe you missed last week, um, we kind of kicked off the series and I laid a lot of the groundwork for what uh, the book of James is all about and kind of who James is. And I'll touch on little bits of that. I won't do a complete recap. Um, but James is. James is a really interesting book. It's hard to study. A lot of theologians will tell you it's difficult to study. And a lot, of, a lot of people just don't like to really teach much on it because there seems to be a very clear divide in the things that uh, the Apostle Paul teaches, who wrote a huge part of the New Testament, um, about faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith is a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. Paul is all about, it's not about doing anything. It's not about what you have to do. It's not all about that. That's not how you earn your righteousness. That's not how you earn salvation. And then we have James here, who is the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, saying what seems like just the opposite faith without works is dead okay so which is it and it is so much of a dichotomy that a lot of people just go well I'm just not even going to study it Martin Luther in fact one of the early church uh, fathers um, said, said I'm not I, I don't even like it I'm not even going to look at it I'm not even going to study it but there's so and he changed his tune later by the way but there's so much in here um, so bear with me as we go through it. There's going to be a lot of Greek in this one today. I know. Sometimes, sometimes I'll pull out Greek, and it's not, to, it's not to go like, hey, look how smart I am, because I had to look it up too. I don't know Greek. Um, but sometimes it matters, because our English language just pales in comparison with the depth of the Greek and the Hebrew. And sometimes the way that it was written originally it really is different than our English minds would translate it. So there's going to be a little bit of that, and I'll walk you through it. So don't, don't, don't worry about that if you don't know Greek. We'll get you up to speed. Give you at least a couple words. Uh, so before I get going, um, I want to ask a question. Now, I asked the same question last week, but some of you weren't here. How many of you... No, and you don't have to raise a hand, and I don't want you to snap your head and look at the person next to you, okay? How many of you know somebody or have known somebody who professes to be a Christian but doesn't live like one? (laughs) That's perfect timing, Bonnie, perfect, perfect timing. How, have you ever been surprised when you find out that somebody's a Christian? Like, for whatever reason, you suddenly find out somebody that you've known for a while is a Christian, and you're like, really? Because I wouldn't have known if you didn't tell me. And then here's a hard question. Is it you? Yeah, That's a hard question, and I don't mean that to be condemning by any means. But if that's you, if you fall into any of those categories, you should want to study the epistle of James. And I say epistle, it's called the book of James, or you can call it the epistle. And an epistle is just a word that just means letter. It's just a letter that that James wrote. And James wrote this letter, this epistle, he wrote it for a specific reason to a specific group of people. And whenever we look at that, including all the letters that Paul wrote, everything Paul wrote, Galatians, Ephesians, all those, they're all epistles. And they're all letters written for, here's a problem you're having, let me help you with it. That's what they're for. Very practical, very much like, here's here's some great advice. And James is such a practical book. It's filled with all kinds of encouragement and exhortations and challenges of how a Christian should live their life, especially in light of the new life that they've been given in Jesus It should create a change. And James even goes so far as to assert that a faith that does not produce real, tangible, visible life change is worthless. That's going pretty far. But I'm going to walk you through this, and I think that you'll probably agree with me at the end. James has so much wisdom about how to live a godly life that it's actually been compared to Proverbs. It's been called the New Testament Proverbs, which makes sense because James, um, James was known to have been very well-versed in Old Testament Scripture, Okay, which sometimes you call it the law. But Scripture as he knew it was all what we call Old Testament stuff. Um, and he was very well-versed in that, and he was writing... To an audience who was also very well versed in it. The audience that he was writing to, what they were is that they were Jews who had converted to Christianity. They didn't call it Christianity yet at that time. But they had converted to followers of Jesus Christ. But they had been scattered. They were all a part of the early Jerusalem church, at least most of them. And they got scattered because of all the persecution that was going on uh, by Herod and so many others. They literally got scared out of Jerusalem, and James is reminding them, this is how you live your life. Now that you're not with us, it'd be as if something happened to us here, and we could no longer meet here, and for some reason we had to scatter. It'd be like, I'm writing a letter to you saying, don't forget who you are. Don't forget to live a life that reflects who your Savior is. And that's exactly what he's doing here. I'm not comparing myself to James, by the way, but that's, that's what it is. But he has been criticized a little bit because he doesn't talk much about the messiahship of Christ. He doesn't talk much about kingdom issues, if you will. Um, he talks about very, very practical things. He really doesn't even talk much about uh, the resurrection and those things, it, it, all the things that are kind of staples of other letters. He doesn't talk much about those things, but what he does do is he talks about how to apply the teachings of Jesus Christ, how to take what Jesus taught and how to apply it to your life. It's very, very practical. And in fact, his encouragement of those who are, have been scattered by this persecution um, He does this by reminding them of the rewards that they will receive if they persevere. When Jesus returns to take his kingdom, they will receive their rewards for living a life reflective of who Christ is in them. And that's exactly what James gets to. So you talk about James, it's not really much of a kingdom message, it's very much A kingdom message. He also goes on the other side and warns those who are living contrary to Christ's teaching that there is a judgment. You will be judged for your actions. So if you look at it that way, it is a kingdom message. Now here's an interesting thing. There's so many interesting little pieces in this that I want to kind of call them out when I go. James did not, and I taught this last week, but just a reminder... He didn't accept his brother, Jesus, as the Messiah. It's not surprising. He grew up with him. He knew knew all these things. And and it'd be hard to to accept somebody that you grew up in the same home with as the Messiah. He didn't accept him at first. He did later, (coughs) after the resurrection, after he literally saw the resurrected Christ, then he accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But until then, he didn't. But he clearly had been hearing the teaching that Jesus had been doing. Now, there were crowds. We know from other, other uh, scripture that there were crowds that followed Jesus everywhere that he went, listening to the teachings, especially things like Sermon on the Mount. They weren't all converts. They weren't all disciples. But some of them were just curious. And James may have been. If, you're, if somebody suddenly said that your sibling was the Messiah, and they're giving a big sermon over here, wouldn't you go and, like, I want to hear what he has to say? So we don't know for sure that he was there, but his teaching, what James talks about, has so many direct parallels to the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus taught. It's almost where you can just track them down one by one by one. Here's what Jesus taught. Here's what James says about it. In fact, it's so so direct of a comparison that some people would call James a study guide to the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, now that doesn't do it justice, but it follows closely along. I think he was present. I think James was present and listening to the things that Jesus was saying, the things that Jesus was teaching, which is an interesting note for us. When we talk to somebody and we share the gospel with them, whether it's just wisdom or, or we share the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and we get cold shoulder, we get a blank stare, we get nothing. A lot of times we think, well, it just, that didn't do any good. Never underestimate the power and the impact of your words. I remember clearly, I remember clearly growing up in my life, Not really knowing Christ, not really having a a relationship with him, certainly. I didn't even know that was possible most of my life. Um, But people were speaking scripture to me. People were speaking the words and the wisdom of Jesus. And I knew who he was, and I knew some of the teachings, but it didn't even make sense to me. And not only did it not make sense, I didn't really care about it. Then, when that time came where I gave my life to Christ, infilled with the Holy Spirit... I look back at all these times and I went, I get it now. All those things people were telling me that I was just shrugging or rolling my eyes or not even paying attention to, now they make sense to me. And I think that's what's happening here with James. Suddenly, after being, seeing the resurrected Christ, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, then all of a sudden all these things come back and he's like, I get it now. And we have this epistle from him. And he is so much more. James James is not about, here's what you should know. Okay, Matthew's very much, here's, here's what you should know. Here's the, the lineage of Jesus. Here's, here's all these things. And, and James is just not, he's not about, here's what you should know. James is like, here's what you should do. So as I said last week, there's actually... It's only 108 verses. James is is concise, but it contains over 60, and I use the word imperatives. Imperatives is kind of a, it's a word we don't use an awful lot, but an imperative is, the dictionary says, it's of vital importance, crucial. For example, your immediate action is imperative. Anybody ever got a bill in the mail that comes in a red envelope? Okay, that's imperative. That's what that means. But the second definition is giving an authoritative command. So we're going to see all kinds of things in James where he gives definite do this, think this, have this, ask this, suppose this. And there's in this week, we're only going to teach one, James chapter one, verses one through eight. It's all we're in today. It's just a little bite-sized Little bite-sized chunk. But we have in in verse 2, it says, consider. That's a definite do this. In verse 4, let him have. Verse 5 and 6, let him ask. In verse 7, think this or don't think this. So it's very, very practical. And sometimes when people break down the study of James, they break it down by those things. We're looking at the imperatives. Another way to break it down is to look at the parallels to the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to do both, so you get treated to both. not going to spend a lot of time on that, but I do want to show that there is a parallel there. So what I'm going to do, if you have your Bible with you, grab it. Uh, I use the NASB, the New American Standard, so you can follow along. If you have a different version, it'll be translated a little differently, but don't worry about that. Or if you don't have it, just listen. I'm going to read the first eight verses because I want you to listen to it in context, And just think about what's going on here as I read through. So James 1, 1 through 8. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's a lot there. There's a lot of to-dos and a lot of practical stuff. Let's go verse by verse. Let's break it apart now, and let's go go individually, see what's going on here. So James 1.1, we have that on screen. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Here's your first Greek lesson, the word bondservant. The word bondservant is a Greek word doulos, and it means a slave who chooses to serve out of indebtedness. So it doesn't mean you were captured and forced into slavery. It means you chose to do that out of, out of a debt. Typically, you're trying to pay back a debt. That's what a bond servant is. James is saying, I have made a free will decision to serve God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that he says. Again, he's writing to these Jewish believers who have been scattered. A word for them is diaspora. If you've ever heard the word diaspora, that just means a bunch of like-minded people who were, who were scattered for whatever reason. That's who he's talking to here. In this case, scared out of, out of the Jerusalem church by the Romans and Herod. Something interesting here, he says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now, that's two things. It's a common, it's a common Hebrew greeting back then. They would say that to each other. The idea of what tribe you came from and being a part of the 12 tribes was a big deal to them. But specifically what he's doing here is he's reminding them of who they are. Like, I don't care where you are. I don't care why you got scattered. I don't care what's going on in your life, the struggles you're going through right now. This is who you are. You are one of the 12 tribes, one of God's chosen people. That's who he's calling them, and he's reminding them of this promise that's been there, to be reunited in the Holy Land. Scripture has told them that. Scripture has promised them that for a long, long time. In fact, Jeremiah 3.18 is what he's referring here to specifically, and it says this. Again, Jeremiah 3.18, this is prophecy from hundreds of years before. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your father's as an inheritance. Okay, that's a prophetic promise that these Jews who have been scattered are being reminded of. Don't forget. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget God's promise to bring you back. So yeah, you're going through some stuff right now, but this isn't how it ends. That's all spoken right there in just that greeting. Verse 2, James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Anybody ever heard that spoken before? Anybody ever wonder, how do I do that? That's not easy. I'm going to tell you how and why we should do that. Get ready for it. But that's the first imperative if you're keeping track. Consider. Consider. And he says when and not if. He doesn't say if you encounter various trials. He goes when you do because it's going to happen. And that holds true today. Now, the first, the first Greek word that we want to look at here is hegaomai. Hegaomai. I'm doing the best I can. <clears throat> but that's the word consider in Greek, hegaomai. And the definition of it is of first priority, meaning the, the first thought in your mind. And I have an example of how that works, uh, how that worked in my life. I remember when I first became a Christian. I first became a, a practicing Christian, knowing Christ and really having him in my heart. I remember meeting uh, a person, she was actually a, a pastor, and they were telling me a story, her and her husband telling me a story about how they were driving down the road, an icy road in the middle of the winter, and they lost control of their car, and it started heading over towards the bank, and there was a creek right over the edge of the bank. Okay. And the first thought in her mind, the thing that she just screamed out the minute the car lost control, was, Lord Jesus, save us. And I thought, would that be the first thing that came to my mind yes. if that happened? It might now, but it wouldn't then. And I remember thinking, that's what it means to have so much faith in Jesus Christ, that your first thought is, Jesus, save me, not, yeah, yeah fill in the blank but that's what this word means consider it means a first priority it's the first thing in your mind instead of thinking how am i going to get out of this you go i know who can get me out of that and that's your first thought okay so hang on to that now the parallel if you're following along to the sermon on the mount that's from matthew 5 10 through 12 and i won't read the whole thing. But it's the one that says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it goes on to say, blessed are you if people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you. Rejoice and be glad. Okay, so the challenge here, here's the challenge for us today. When you're faced with a trial, not just to get through it. How do I get through this? But to have your first thought, to have your impulse be, yay, a trial. (laughs) Easy, right? Okay, we're done. You can go home. Just live that. Yay, a trial. Okay. How do we do that? That's hard. Nobody looks at a trial and says, yay, I get to go through a trial. You know why that is? Because we don't look at it the right way. I'm going to show you what scripture says about looking at it the right way. We focus on what we gain by the experience. That's what we do. It's not, oh no, I'm going to get beat up by this trial and just hopefully I survive it. The thought is, what do I gain from going through this experience? What is there to be gained by going through? It's one example of the phrase, what's in it for me actually applies. Look at a trial and say, how am I going to gain from this? And let me go on and explain it further. James 1.3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let me read it in context here. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Okay, endurance. Here's another Greek word, hypomene. Endurance in Greek is hypomene. And the definition is a God-empowered steadfastness. It's a a power, it's a resolve, it's a steadfastness that's only possible with God. And let me explain what what that is, this this steadfastness, this endurance, because we hear endurance all the time. What does this mean? One of the study uh, resources that I use from time to time is called the Blue Letter Study Bible. And it phrases it like this. So I want to give them credit, because I'm just going to quote how they talk about that word, hupomene, endurance. This word does not describe a passive waiting, but an active endurance. It, is, it isn't so much the quality that helps you sit quietly in a doctor's waiting room, as it is the quality that helps you finish a marathon. They're both endurance. One is passive, and one is active. This is active endurance. And why do we need active endurance? James 1.4, let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's your second imperative, by the way, if you're keeping track, let have. And that translates in the Greek as the word echo, which means to own permanently. It becomes part of you. We practice it so much that it becomes part of you. Anybody ever practice, um, you practice guitar, you practice any musical instrument, you practice a sport, you practice football, you practice any of these things, and why do we practice? So that it becomes second nature. It becomes a part of who we are. You don't even have to think about it anymore. That's what they're saying here. It permanently becomes a part of you. Parallel to the Sermon on the Mount, direct parallel, Matthew 5, 48, we have that one here. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, so perfection is our goal. Anybody ever taught that only Jesus is perfect? All the time, right? Here's what Scripture says about perfection, though. Hebrews 10.4. For by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And Paul writes in Philippians, Philippians 2, 14, 15. Do all things without complaining or arguments so that you will prove yourself to be blameless, which is also translated as that same perfect word. Blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. All right, so... Jesus is the only one who is ever perfect, but we are made righteous through him. His perfection is alive in us. His light is alive in us. How do we manage to hold on to that and not only to hold on to it, but to display it and live it in a world that's a little messed up right now? Anybody agree the world is a little messed up right now? Did you catch what Paul wrote to the Philippians, though, over 2,000 years ago? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. We are no more messed up now than this world has always been. But we are still called to be lights, to be lights to this world. So how do we do it? James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Okay, there's a lot to chew on right there. That's the third imperative, by the way, if you're keeping notes. Let him ask. It's just something to do. And that word, let him ask, in the Greek is petition. So, the parallel to Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is Matthew 7, 7 and 8, and it's ask and it will be given, and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, to the one who knocks it will be opened. That word wisdom, the word wisdom, again, here's another Greek lesson, I told you there's going to be a ton of it, is Sophia. Anybody, ever, anybody know anyone named Sophia? Translates as wisdom. Beautiful name. But what it really means is divine insight and clarity. Divine Insight. If you ask for it, you'll get it. Without reproach, That we can't just throw that away because that is something that keeps a lot of us from asking for wisdom. Okay, and here's what I mean. Let me read that again. Who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Anybody here ever been new on a job or it's the third time you've asked it and you still forgot and you want to ask, how do I do this? Or where is this? Or where would you put that? You want to ask for wisdom. You want to ask for an answer. But you don't because you're afraid of either looking dumb or getting chastised because how many times am I going to have to tell you this? Right? It happens all the time. I think most of us do it at one point or another. And and you go, well, I'll just figure it out. Or I won't. And I'll do without. Whatever it is. That fear of being judged, that fear of, scripture calls it, reproach, being judged, being looked down on, that's, that's so ingrained in us. The enemy wants you to say, don't ask for wisdom, they're going to think you're stupid. Don't do it. They're going to be frustrated with you. You should all know this already. That's what the enemy wants to tell us. But that is not true. That's why scripture says he gives to all generously and without reproach. He's not going to judge you. No matter how many times you ask him, no matter how many times, he's not there going, oh my gosh, okay. One last time, then you're on your own. The Holy Spirit never says that. Never tires of us going to him. So, the question then, if that Greek word translates, if that Greek word let him ask or that phrase translates as petition, how do we petition God? How do we do that? Do we stand out in front of a grocery store with a clipboard? That kind of petition? We pray. By the way, after we are putting together, you hear Pastor Gabe talk about a prayer team. After service, if I forget to mention it, after we do communion, we have a prayer team that is just They just want to pray for you. They want to pray with you. And so right after when we start our communion in the back uh, by the two benches that are back there, you will find our prayer team back there. And if you need prayer for encouragement, if you need prayer for wisdom, if you need prayer for healing, whatever you need prayer for, they are there. And so I want to say that while it's on my heart so I don't forget because prayer is powerful. Prayer is so powerful. That's how we petition God. Now, listen to this about prayer. This is another one of those practical things that can seem hard. So listen, James 1 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So, how do we ask in faith? Paul says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So, you ask in faith because you've already heard from the holy spirit what to ask for it seems easy it's not always that easy now i don't often study from the nlt version anybody here have an nlt that they use commonly i love the nlt translates that phrase in a way i want to read the nlt version again james james 1:6 In the NASB, but he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea. In the NLT, James 1.6 says, But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. So here's the question that comes out of that. When you pray... Do you pray, but do you hedge your bets? Do you pray, but say in the back of your mind, well, if he doesn't answer it, then here's my plan B. Do you pray out loud in such a vanilla way that it could be taken anyway? You hedge your bets by praying, God... If it's in your will, I've done this. If it's in your will, we would like you to heal this person. If it's in your will, we would like you to bless this person. If it's in your will, I would like help out of my situation. So that I can say, well, if it didn't happen, it must not be in his will. Okay, That's not entirely wrong, but if you're hedging your bet saying, well, if God doesn't come through, at least I haven't made myself look stupid by saying... I know he's going to do this. Is that truly faith then? Or is that doubt? James 1.7 goes on to say, For that person ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Does that sound harsh? That's the fourth imperative, by the way, and it's a negative imperative. Don't expect. Don't expect. 1 John 5, 14, 15 says, this is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Anybody ever heard that before? And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked for Him. That sounds pretty definitive. If you pray, you know He hears you. And if He hears you, you'll have what you ask. Charles Spurgeon, fairly well-known theologian, wrote this about prayer. He goes, you know, dear friends, that there's a way of praying in which you ask for nothing and get it. This is what James is talking about right here. When you pray, ask. Faith and confidence go hand in hand. And I think prayer missing either one of those things is just going to be failure to launch every time. James 1.8 goes on and says what that person who hedges their bets is like. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Another Greek lesson, double-minded. Double-minded is the Greek word dipsukos. And what it means is, what it literally means is split in half. Think of it as a spiritual schizophrenic. And it's important, and it matters. And I'll tell you why it matters by calling a word from Revelation. If you think of somebody who is is double-minded, half their brain is here and half their brain is here. One of the scriptures that immediately pops to my mind is Revelations 3, 15, 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Ever heard that one? I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. We're not called to be double-minded. We are called to make a stand, have faith. Your choice, your faith, your confidence is in Jesus Christ and him alone, not any plan B that we're going to come up with. That's where our faith is. And that scripture from Revelation is all the more appropriate as I now I'll wrap up the study and I'll explain to you why steadfastness and patience which is what he talks about being produced by going through a trial going through a trial will produce patience will produce endurance as we approach the end of days anybody think we're getting closer to the end of days the news flash for you every day we're getting closer to the end of days We don't know when that day will come. But I can tell you that we will experience trials. We will experience trials unlike anything this world has ever known. And you can't persevere through a trial unless you've practiced persevering through a trial. Anybody here learn how to drive a car simply by reading the manual? Anybody here ever learn how to to set up and work your computer just by reading the manual? Or do you look at it and go... You know, I, I have no idea what that's saying. Anybody here a Bronco fan? Okay, talk about perseverance. But one of the, one of the knocks that the coach, the ex-coach Hackett got, nice guy. He's, he, he was a very nice guy. He was almost too nice because one of the knocks that he constantly got is he didn't make his team practice football. They didn't wear pads, they didn't hit, they didn't do anything, and he was fearful that they were going to get hurt and that it was going to be difficult and he's going to lose players. So he said, okay, we're just, just going to walk through. We're going to read the playbook, talk about the playbook, and we're just going to kind of walk through everything. That's not practicing. And so when the time came, they had no idea how to play the game. It's like they had forgotten it. We prepare for the coming of Christ's kingdom by living a life reflective of him, regardless of, and in many ways, especially because of the trials that we're going to face. And we do that by living an active life of obedience to the word of God. So when James says, faith without works is dead, we'll study that scripture in a couple of weeks. But when he says that, he's saying this, you are going to face a trial and there is a godly way to handle that trial and that will protect you and that will prepare you for the real trials in life that are to come. We can expect them and we can look forward to them. This is how we face it with joy. This is how we say yay when we face a trial because we know that they're producing endurance in us. They're producing perseverance. That's what the trials do. They are equipping us to stand firm in the face of trial. And by that, we will receive the reward. That's why. What reward, you may ask? Revelations 321, the one who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. That's the reward for perseverance during a trial. That's how we can look at a trial. If we look at it with the right mindset, and say, this is preparing me. I don't care if it's a flat tire or, or a financial issue. Whatever trial you're facing, it's preparing you to face those things and face them with the Holy Spirit, with the wisdom of God, in a way that brings his light to this world. If we profess to be Christians 364 days of the year, and on that last day we face something and we completely lose our minds, what have we gained? Nobody's going to be perfect. It's not condemnation. Nobody's going to be perfect. But here's the thing. People are watching you. People are watching Christians. How are you going to deal with a trial? Because I know how I deal with a trial. It's probably not very Christian-like. I'm quoting someone else, not me. I, would. <laughs> I want to finish this up. I remember I, I said the first week I taught um, Martin Luther... I taught that Martin Luther was, he had a problem with this epistle. But he later, very shortly later, wrote an introduction to a study on the book of Romans. Book of Romans, which Paul wrote, which was all about faith. And Martin Luther writes this. Oh, it is a living, busy, mighty thing. Let me start over. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. There's a flip. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Let's pray. Father God, see my heart. See my heart in this world. I know, I know that perfection is our goal. I am called to be a reflection of you. And I fail more often than not. But Lord, I know that your grace and your mercy abounds and your grace and your mercy cover those things. And so I don't have to be fearful that I'm not reconciled to the Father, but Lord, I should be joyful. I should be joyful that you're using me to show this world your light. So Father, those times when my mind is not focused on you, those times when I... When I hedge my bets, I will pray, but I'll also come up with a plan B. Lord, help me to just focus on you and your plans and your purposes in my life. And help me to face that with joy. Whatever the outcome, help me to face it with joy. Knowing that you are preparing me. You are preparing me for the reward that comes. And that reward is promised. I stand on that promise as I stand on all the promises in your word. Father, I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, guys, we're going to take communion now. Don't forget we have prayer team in the back. The way we do communion here, um, if, you, if you call Jesus your Lord and Savior, you're invited to take communion with us. You don't have to be a part of this church or anything. But it is a declaration that, yes, I hear the words of the Lord. I hear my marching orders in this, and I say yes. doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. Nobody can promise to be perfect. But we can promise that it matters and that we will do our best to be a reflection of Him, to bring that light into this world. And if you can say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I know what I should do, and I will do the best that I can. That's all you have to say. Then we invite you to take communion with us. We have two stations. One will be over here. The other one will be here. Up front, we'll be serving wine. And then we have bread and little gluten-free crackers. And what we do is you just dip in the wine, and you take it that way. In the back, next to the door there, we have a self-serve station. That is juice back there. And if you want to take that uh, or you don't want wine, you want to serve yourself, go back there and do that. But let's also move around, take advantage of the prayer team in the back. We can pray for one another. Let's just pray the the Lord would take this message and make it alive, make it real in our hearts. And then let's go out and walk it out in our lives. Amen? Thank you, guys.